0: Mind you, I've met with like all the record labels now. I walk in to by far the most beautiful office of any of them. It's a corner office in New York City. It's unbelievable view. It's offices like bigger than this floor of my house that we're in right now. <laughs> and there's Jay-Z sitting in the room. And I'm like, oh. When people ask me like, do you ever get starstruck? I'm like, yeah, I got starstruck then.
1: Welcome to Big Questions. This is Gal Fussman. Three years ago this month, a song was released that ultimately caught my attention. Not only mine, everybody's. Became a huge hit, this call, I Took a Pill in Ibiza. Melody is great, and there's an intriguing video of it on YouTube. But what struck me immediately is the underlying theme in this song about getting the courage to look in the mirror and see the truth. The song was written by Mike Posner. Mike and I have a lot of mutual friends, and I call him a friend, even though I haven't spent much time with him, because there was just something about being around him that I feel when I'm around my friends. You just know it. There it is. So this week's episode of Big Questions... It's a conversation I had with Mike about a year ago, before this podcast even started. Tim Ferriss was nudging me to start the podcast back then, and Kevin, the manager, got Mike and I together just to see what would happen. Mike actually set up the recording equipment for this conversation. This conversation works through Mike's life to the point of a visa. It's highly personal, but it goes beyond that because it leaves you with a question. What if I looked my life in the mirror like Mike did? Even when things seem to be going well, especially when things are going well, there are places that we try to avoid, and this song always turns me back to the mirror and asks me to take a real hard look at myself. I once met a very wise woman who liked to put forth three questions. Who am I? Where am I going? Why? This episode sort of answers those questions for Mike, but I hope it also enables you to ask those questions for yourself. Thank you to my sponsors, Squarespace and ZipRecruiter, for bringing this to you. You'll hear more about them in the mid-roll, but for now... Let's get straight to Mike Posner. We're on, and uh, this is Cal Fussman here with Mike Posner. Here I am. Who has just given me an amazing (laughs) audio lesson on how to set up a podcast. Yeah. I'll never be the same. (laughs) Thank you. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be the same after I met you. I'm glad the transformation process is. <laughs> it's begun. only just begun. <laughs> the best is yet to come. Right, man. So I got so many things I'm curious about, and I almost purposely didn't go too deep into your history, so as to treat it as if I had just sat down next to you on a bus. And looked over and said, Holy shit, I'm sitting next to Mike Bosner. Madness is great. (laughs) And so, if we were into that conversation, one of the things that I'm sure would come up pretty quick is I'm curious was there a moment where you knew you had the gift in your voice?
0: Hmm. It's an interesting question because I remember feeling like I didn't have the gift in my voice when I first, and it ties into the recording lesson we just did when I was 13 and I got my first microphone. And actually, I didn't, I didn't, I just used to record myself on like the microphone that came with my mom's like gateway desktop computer. And I remember listening back and
1: being like it sounds
0: terrible.
1: <laughs> my voice is terrible. Oh, and no nobody likes the sound of their own voice, right?
0: No, and I would I would say the first 2 years first 2 years of my career in recording, if you call it a career. I was a kid playing on his mom's computer. But the first 2 years of me recording music was really spent on like trying to figure out how to make my voice sound good to me and getting used to how my own voice sounded to me. Um so I've been ta- I've been talking into microphones for a lot of years now. Um and
1: so you were trying to make the microphone your friend since you were like 13 years yeah, old.
0: Yeah, and I feel like it didn't like me at first. For, for about two years. And I think honestly, it was a combination of getting used to how my own voice actually sounds and using my voice in a way that I actually liked. Um, and this has been an ongoing thing for me because I've sort of I've created microphone voices at times in my career especially if you listen to my earlier music where i would sing very breathy if i could write you a song to make i can make like a parody of myself but when i listen to it it sounds ridiculous and the reason i grew out of that was a lot of the microphone voices i would use were unhealthy and i um i would use my voice up and i couldn't sustain myself on a tour so i work with voice coaches and they say you're, you're like whispering when you sing buddy and uh
1: don't do that <laughs> now when you were starting at 13 were you just speaking into the microphone or were you singing into it
0: i was rapping you know, i was explicitly not singing i started singing when i was 20 19 or 20 and i started rapping when i was eight so i think i've actually rapped longer than i've Sung still.
1: And can you recall the moment you started rapping?
0: There was a moment where I had a sleepover with a couple friends, Ronnie Posey and Aaron Webster. Shout outs (laughs) if you guys are listening. (laughs) And uh, we we had I don't know we came up with we had somehow decided before the sleepover that we were going to freestyle. Freestyle means like rap off the top of your head without a pre-written verse, just rap, make it up as you go. I don't know why or how we had stumbled upon. We we liked rap music to to be um, clear for sure, um, and so we had we like all found one CD that had music without. Um, words that we could um rap to we had this sleepover and we all sort of rapped, and we all stunk and (laughs) i remember them sort of feeling like that was fun and i remember feeling like i'm gonna get really good at this and i haven't really stopped since
1: wow so you that was a moment that was a pivotal moment for you
0: yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize it was a pivotal moment at the time. I just liked it. I was like, I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to. I'm going to get like. I'm going to be dope at this, and um, I didn't realize at the time that I was going to, you know, be my career.
1: Now, where exactly did this happen? And we had a little conversation before we started mm-hmm. about being from Detroit. Yeah. Or being from the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah. So this is happening in the suburbs of Detroit. This is
0: happening in Southfield, Michigan. Southfield borders Detroit. And um, yeah, we spoke earlier. Um, let me see who's at the door right
1: now. This could be an additional oh. guest here. I can't hang out right now. <laughs> hey man, how you doing? This is Cal. What's going on? I don't know. Cheers. No okay. problem. I did
0: not <laughs> nice helmet, dude. Man,
1: <laughs> hold it. <laughs> Guy shows up looking for his wallet in the this, middle of a podcast. This, What's going on here?
0: Sorry about that. If you want, I can edit that out. <laughs> that helps no,
1: for you. man, no. I'm, I'm all about authenticity. Yeah, well, so the, like, actually,
0: I re- this is one of the reasons I love living here for the first time in my adult life I've had a home where like my friends just come over and I love that I love love, love. and I lived in LA six years before I moved to this house and I was lonely a lot because everyone was just far away my friends were all far away and um, yeah this is awesome like I have a lot of friends that live nearby and they can come over when they want (laughs) This
1: is gonna be a crazy question.
0: Should I answer the, the Southfield
1: question first? Okay. Um, yeah, answer the Southfield question. I'm gonna I'm gonna save the next question I had, which is a it's a very it's kind of a bizarre question that only I would have, because everybody would know the answer and I don't know the answer to it. Okay. So let's let's go back to your roots, and yeah. and just explain the whole Detroit. Southfield. So I was born in Detroit. My parents were
0: born and raised in Detroit. And my sister was in the third grade. She's six years older than me. And I was, I believe, getting ready to start school. And my parents just didn't... The school system just weren't good enough for their liking and so my mom wrote the state and she found out where the best schools were in michigan and she found this little pocket of southfield which is a suburb bordering detroit that is part of birmingham school district and birmingham schools are very very good um and southfield houses are a little cheaper than birmingham houses so she like nailed it and so we moved to Southfield, and that's where I grew up. Um, and I think the reason I like this house too, actually, maybe it was good. Adam popped in, we liked this because that's what it was like growing up. I had like like where you grew up, yeah. I had a street, North Greenway. And we had a crew. We would play basketball every day. We'd ride bikes every day. We'd create games and little ridiculous things and play football. You know, it was me, David Smith, Marcus Nelson, Aaron Webster was across the street. Ronnie Posey was in the neighborhood. Aaron Coney. We had a we had a crew: Marcus Nelson, Larry Harrell, Daryl McClure. <laughs> yeah, and. We didn't call each other before we you know we just went over and knocked on the door. Right. You know? And maybe I'm trying to recreate that in my adulthood. Sounds like I am.
1: Yeah, because you would think like nowadays people would just text. Mm-hmm. Hey, you see my wallet? Yeah. It was very cool. They just knock on the door. <laughs> hey, where's my wallet?
0: <laughs> exactly. Um so yeah, we this 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 freestyle episode. This first rapping uh, took place in Ronnie Posey's basement.
1: Ronnie Posey's basement. And then we, we were talking about just what it's like to be a musician from Detroit because mm-hmm. there's such a heritage. And when you say I'm from Detroit as a musician, like it means something.
0: It does. Because there's... Yeah, there's this lineage of great musicians. Um Motown is just it's just in the DNA. We, like if people ask like what music you listen to, that's just like in Michigan you don't even have to say that because everyone listened to it. Like we all grew up listening to Motown. So that's kind of like prerequisite learning. I mean, it, like, comes with, comes with being from there. Um, and then, like, you go through sort of the the iterations of the the lineage. I mean, like, at least for me, it was, you know, it was like, Eminem, right? And, like, Kid Rock, you know, from for Michigan. And then, like, our generation was, like, me, Big Sean, um, like, Mayor Hawthorne. It's kind of like a small... Everyone kind of like, even if you're not best friend, Big Sean and I happen to be close friends, but everyone like knows what the other one's up to, you know? And you don't want to
1: mess up that lineage at all, you know? Yeah, it, it, it was interesting before we turned on the mics and got the recorders going, we were just talking about what it's like for you when people introduce you. Is being from Detroit. Right. How uncomfortable that makes you. Right. And I I said to you before is that if I was in Michigan,
0: I would never say I'm from Detroit. I would say I'm from Southfield. And the reason is, is being from Detroit, it, well, it doesn't always imply, I mean, being from Detroit doesn't necessarily mean you had a tough time growing up. Um, it kind of implies that when you say you're yeah, from it's there. Hardships. And and I grew up in a middle class neighborhood, largely African American neighborhood, but like we when we went to the grocery store, we didn't check the prices. Which I always think is like a good indicator where the family like we got the food we wanted to eat, right? And we didn't like we didn't check the prices. So I would never like I I don't want to wave the flag or or claim that I've undergone or made it through a hardship that I haven't which I think saying I'm from Detroit does. And so it's is yeah I I I feel uncomfortable <laughs> with that a lot, you know. But yeah. but
1: then there are people like from Detroit that are proud of you and want you to say you're from Detroit.
0: Yeah, I was telling you I had a, had a long conversation with Paul Rosenberg about this, and Paul Rosenberg is from a suburb. I think he's from Farmington or North Farmington, like myself. And he man, he manages Eminem. is from Detroit, clearly, and so he, Paul was encouraging me to like say I'm from Detroit more and claim it more. And the reason he was saying, encouraging me to do so, was so for me to help the city more. Like it was coming from a good place. He was like, "You're from Detroit," but in my head, I was thinking, "Well, what would what would Marshall say? What would Eminem say <laughs> if he heard me say <laughs> I'm from Detroit?" You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm torn. I'm torn about that. You
1: know. Is is it good to be torn to be an artist? Because like all art comes from conflict. Yeah. Well,
0: I don't know, does it? I mean, that's a that's a fun sentence, but I'm not sh I'm really not sh- I hope it's not true, honestly. If you gave me the option of being like having peace and enlightenment, that was a, that was like one offer, or I could have like really great art, I'd pick peace and enlightenment for sure. Amazing. Yeah. Um And we were talking earlier, you know, I've been doing some searching um, the last five years. And, And a lot of that came from me attaining success at a young age, air quote success, meaning like I attained notoriety, popularity, attention from the opposite sex and financial success. At like age 21 or 22, I was like a millionaire. And my music was popular. I'm parading around the world, taking my shirt off at shows. <laughs> and I realized that at some point it didn't solve all the problems I thought it was going to solve, meaning I like was still the same guy with the same like – if you broke down my happiness and sadness into percentages they were about the same as they were before all that happened so i am trying to figure out like if that doesn't do it what does
1: but, but it sounds like from the way you're describing your upbringing you're you're a pretty happy guy
0: i have my ups and downs yeah. like anyone um it's yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I felt like the full breadth of human emotion. I, I'd say, like, in every place I've been in, and um, there definitely been moments in my upbringing where I felt really unhappy, especially in high school, um, in the winters. Especially, I would feel, I would feel really depressed. And I, I want to clarify what I mean when I say that word because depressed can be used as like an emotion, but it's also the name of like an illness. Right. Right. So I'm I'm using it to refer to an emotion. I never went. You're feeling sad. Yeah, I was feeling sad. I never was like diagnosed with right. depression. Um, I would feel sad for long periods of time.
1: But I mean, I mean, a lot of teenagers go through that cycle i was one of them (laughs) i was one of them um is that a place where you could easily funnel your feelings into music
0: i felt like it was easy for me to say what i really wanted to say in my music where there wasn't really a place for me to express that or at least I felt like there wasn't a place for me to express that. If I was able to like authentically speak about how I was feeling, I'm sure other kids would have been like, yeah, I feel that way too." But in that's not I didn't I didn't know how to do that yet. So for years, I would say I'm better at singing or I'm better at rapping than I am at speaking and i felt like i didn't know how to i didn't know how to talk to people and so it, like the who i actually was and how i wanted how i actually felt only had this one place to go which was my music wow um but i mean i want to say the when we started this tangent like i i this is what i'm exploring now is like making art that doesn't come out of conflict.
1: Well, you would never be able to do that, brother.
0: I don't How know. How could you do that? I think um, it's interesting, like, playing, practicing the guitar, not because I'm not good enough now, because I like practicing guitar. Oh, um, I, see, I see what you're so saying. So couldn't, I, I, do, what you're couldn't saying. I record music the same way, not because there's something wrong that I, with me that I need to get out. Maybe there's something right with me that I
1: want to share. Oh, sure. I, I get that. You know? But it, it's like if you go to a movie, you're never going to see a movie that is like completely at peace. Yeah. It would, it, it would make no sense to see a movie. Mm-hmm. It would be boring to most people. Mm-hmm. It's like good health is beautifully boring. Yeah. And but art is like overcoming a difficulty to get to Mm. a majestic place. It seems to me that's just my definition.
0: Interesting. So maybe what I'm what I'm doing is not like just standing on this mountaintop smiling, saying how great it is, (laughs) but it's it's acknowledging how hard that road up was. And I am sure there'll be other mountains to climb, right? To to maybe extend the metaphor unnecessarily, <laughs> but yeah, like I don't want to make naive art, where, where or like Pollyannish art, where it's just like, hey, everything's great. But I the, here is where I am at to like speak concretely. In the past, I felt I've made really great sad songs, really like really mastered the depressing song. And now I'd just like to leave a little hope at the end. Leave a little light at the end with my next record. Instead of just saying, explaining how hard it is to be me and like using my vulnerability as like, the novelty of my vulnerability has worn off. It's like, okay, okay. I've really examined all the dark things. That was last record, like how can I how can I then give hope? Where do you go from there?
1: So how did this all play out from the time you're 13 to your 20, mm-hmm. where you're you're taking these feelings deep inside of you and throwing them into music? And then all of a sudden, attaining not only success, but celebrity, everything you can dream of.
0: Mm-hmm. So I continued rapping after that day in the basement, and I would practice freestyling. I'd practice rapping and making it up as I went. And I got pretty good at it. And so in high school, I would do what we call battle other rappers. So it'd be like two guys in the middle of a circle, and you're making fun of each other in rap, in time, in rhyme, and making it up as you go. And I was good at it. (laughs) I was good at it. And so it would take place sometimes just like in the hallways at our school, and then it would take place sometimes at parties and sometimes during football games. We would be under the bleachers, and there'd be like a, a little crowd, maybe thirty people you know and I don't think I can't remember ever losing i if, now, there's wh- probably someone I did it battled against that's saying they beat me, but they didn't beat me <laughs> <laughs> and so
1: when you when how do you know that you've won is that internal or is it just everybody
0: is kind of responding? Crowd, yeah. crowd consensus yeah and internal um but it's crowd consensus. yeah. And
1: was there like a, a highlight moment for you? A, a greatest victory?
0: Well, it's a, it's a good segue. So I recorded and I also was recording music. My mom got me a microphone and like a cheap keyboard from Best Buy that I plugged in her computer. I was on like uh, forums online figuring out how to make, we call them making beats, and a beat is... All the music behind a rapper. So when you say like yo, you hear rappers say like it was a great beat. They're referring to the total instrumental bed that they're rapping upon. So I was learning how to do that, and I made an album in my senior year. That I sold out the trunk of my car. We made like a thousand bucks, and I felt like I, (laughs) I had made it, and I got a job. The summer after my senior year, let me clarify, it was an internship. Is an internship a job? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Whatever. I got a job at uh, an urban radio station downtown called Hot 1027. And I was there. I would do things like, you know, get coffee for people or I'd like... They had T-shirts they would give away. I'd organize the prize closet and the T-shirts and fold them all, et cetera. And I worked with, there was another intern I worked with named Pat. And Pat was a really talented rapper, so I started doing beats for him. And he said, you know, I'm in a group with this guy, Sean. But it's kind of in a weird spot because we met Kanye West, and Kanye wants to sign Sean, but he doesn't want to sign me. Oh man. Um anyway, Pat introduces me to Sean. There's a they have a whole crew called Finally Famous. And I I they take me in their crew. I'm like the only white guy in this like this crew. We're finally famous. And uh I started doing you know, I was doing music with Pat. I was also doing music with with Sean. And I started like doing beats for Sean and sometimes doing choruses. And um, I then, I had been accepted to Duke University. I, I left the summer ended. I went to school. Sean had been accepted to Michigan State University, but Kanye told him, don't go. You're going to be a rapper. <laughs> like I'm signing you. <laughs> and so you don't need to go to college. So he didn't go and he was making music Detroit, and I didn't really know anybody else, so I would just, I mean, in my dorm room, I had my keyboard and my equipment, and I would, I would make music all year for Sean. Like, I'd do a 100 beats. I'd send them all to Sean, and he'd use, like, two of them, you know? And uh, at some point, I started... I I don't know why but I decided like I want to I want to sing my raps. Maybe it was like I'm in North Carolina now. It's a lighter <laughs> mood. Yeah. I started to sing my raps. And I wanted to sing the way I wanted to hear a singer sing as a rap fan. So I would take these kind of like more complex rhymes and sing them like so on my first what became a popular song was called cooler than me it has this internal rhyme scheme you got designer shades just to hide your face so like it's not just the last word of the line that rhymes there's one before it designer shades to hide your face Right. And like I got off on that. It was like nerdy hip hop stuff, but I didn't, I hadn't heard people sing those kind of rhymes before. And that was like, it was cool to me. And I, at this point, I've been making music 12 years, but that was the first time I felt like I had stumbled upon what was undoubtedly influenced by a plethora of artists. But was unmistakably my voice.
1: Was there like a moment where you understood that? Where where you like took that leap?
0: It was after I I I made the first batch of songs and like I had a MySpace at the time and put them out on MySpace and I remember Big Sean calling me and saying, this Cooler Than Me song is like, uh, he's like, that's like a hit song. And I remember thinking like that, like he'd been hanging out with Kanye and like Pharrell and Madonna. like, And like, to me that made no sense. Like I'm just, I'm making music in my dorm room. And I said, thank you, hung up the phone. And then an hour or two later, my mom calls and says, yeah, like, nonchalantly, yeah, I really like that Cooler Than Me song. And I'm like, which is twofold. One, I've been making music 12 years. My mom's always supportive, let me use her computer, help me buy instruments, pay for drum lessons, everything. Like, love her to death, I would not be speaking in this microphone. I wouldn't be alive without her, obviously, but, like, I wouldn't be where I am in my career without my mother. No way. But at that time... She had never told me she liked anything I made before because she hadn't liked anything I made before. My mom is honest and she'll still tell me if she doesn't like something I make and it means something when she does. I really admire that about her. Um, So there was that, right? That was big in its own right. But then there was the fact that my mom and Big Sean liked the same song (laughs) and I had made that song. Wow. And how? <laughs> and so, that was a moment where I felt okay. Something's different. I've been I've been doing this a while now. Something's different about what I'm doing right now. And I'm at college, and I would I was kind of a hermit. I still am, though. I pretend like I'm not. Um, you could. It was loud in dorms. You know, kids are running around. They're drinking. They'd go to the bars. At midnight, come back 2:30. Okay, I got two and a half hours of quiet. That's when I did vocals. I could record vocals there. So
1: So you're recording vocals in your dorm room? Yeah,
0: I recorded that song, Cooler Than Me, which later became my first hit in in my dorm room at Duke. And the kids started coming back and telling me your song, like someone played that song at the party and everyone knew it. And I'm like, what? 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 So that was like kind of part of that same moment where I knew something, some difference going on. So how did that go out? Good question. So at that time it was two thousand eight, and the music industry was really back on its heels because, um, everyone was stealing music, um, including me. There were, like, people were using sites like Kazaa and LimeWire to download music for free. And then we would use, at college, we had, like, really fast internet. We would use BitTorrents, which I don't really know the difference, but I know we were, like, downloading albums, like, really fast, like, before they came out even. Um, and so iTunes hadn't yet... The way I always interpret it is the iTunes made it easier to buy music than it was to steal music, but they hadn't yet. So in 2008, I was a new artist. How do I release this music? If I'm stealing Kanye's album, who I love, I know, <laughs> oh, no. I know no one's going to buy my music because they don't know who the hell I am. I'm new. So I decided to, one, give away my music for free. So I would, I would, um, I'd have it on my MySpace and I believe you could download it right off my MySpace. And um, I started through the help of like friends and managers, a guy named Matt Graham got my music on to music blogs. Um, So sort of like nerdy people who were really into music would get them there. And then this really beautiful accident happened where I was a student at Duke, as I mentioned, and they had this thing set up called iTunes U. iTunes U, I believe it still exists, but it, it in its iteration then was set up for professors to put their lectures online for free. iTunes U was free. And I found out who ran iTunes U at Duke. I got him on the phone. His name was Todd Stabley. And Todd Stabley was from Southfield, Michigan. And he agreed to let me put my album on iTunes U. So now I have my album on iTunes in this safe, beautiful, universal, legal place. But it didn't cost money. And I knew no one was going to buy my music at that point for the reasons I already mentioned. And so that was very pivotal for the beginning of my career because while other musicians who were in my position would have been stuck with like their music just on the blogs where like nerdy music people were, I knew like the, my friends are telling me like the rich white girls at Duke liked my music too. And they weren't on those blogs, but they had iTunes. And so I, I really like got lucky and Todd helped me out and, I started a Facebook group, like invited my, all my friends, asked my friends to invite all their friends. We had like 33,000 people invited to this Facebook group or event with a link to my thing, my um, mixtape. I made a mixtape and it, started, it just started to spread like word of mouth from our campus to other campuses and then i was getting booked to do shows at other schools my like email and and phones start ringing from record labels um and i get to the end of my my junior year and like i'm being flown to new york to meet with like atlantic records and rca and um i've flown to LA and meet with Jimmy Iovine all about you know signing me as a as an artist and I get to so I do all these meetings I come back it's like kind of a whirlwind things are actually taking off Uh, I should mention that when I do this like first like project in my dorm room that Big Sean did three features on that project and it like really helped people listen so anyways, I get to end a junior year. I flown to New York, flown to LA, come back. Things are picking up. Booked a couple shows. These are the first shows I've ever done. And I'm in finals week at Duke. And I'm trying to like also not fail <laughs> my classes. Oh, man. And my manager calls and he says, you have to go back to New York. I said, dude, I just got back from New York. I can't go to New York I have to like write this term paper. He's like, You gotta go back to New York. Jay Z wants to meet you. I go, What do you mean? Jay Z wants to meet you. Meet me? Jay Z wants to meet you. I go, Okay, I'll go back to New York. So I don't t- like, I'm on, I'm like taking this call in my dorm room and like, I don't tell the soul because I don't believe it's actually gonna happen. I think I'm gonna fly to New York. And they're gonna say, Mr. Carter's busy today, he's very sorry, John Mania like and meet with someone else. That's what I actually think is gonna happen. So I don't tell anyone, I fly to New York. I arrive at the the Rock Aware or Rockaway um, building. And I'm waiting, you know, like. and Finally, they're like, "Okay, Jay's Jay's ready to see you." I still don't believe he's actually gonna be there. Walk through all these like samples of his clothing line, and going by like Mark Ronson's in the building, who's a wonderful artist and producer and DJ. And we, and I mind you, I've met with like all the record labels now. I walk in to by far the most beautiful office of any of them. It's a corner office in New York City unbelievable view it's offices like bigger than this floor of my house that we're in right now and there's jay-z sitting in the room and i'm like oh. when people ask me like do you ever get starstruck i'm like yeah i got starstruck then and i was struck by his ability to un strike me he made you comfortable in a finger snap quick couple minutes to like then i'm like trying to plug my laptop into his like system so i can play my music and it's like not working but it's okay because he's like he's so amazing (laughs) like we're just hanging out finally i get my my laptop plugged in right i remember he's wearing like the first kanye yeezy shoes he's wearing these black diamonds on his like neck and wrist and I play the song Cooler Than Me If I could write you a song to make you fall in love I would already I look over at him and he scrunches up his face almost in a painful way and he starts nodding his head real hard like he loves it and I'm just like wow (laughs) This is like insane. (laughs) And we end up, I play more song. We end up talking for like maybe two hours, maybe two hours. And it's me, my manager, Jay-Z, and his business partner at the time, John Manili. Jay-Z looks at John Manili and goes, what? What do we do now? And John Manili goes, we do a deal now. He's like, okay. So I leave. I go back to Duke, and I'm writing my term paper in the library.
1: (laughs) What was the term paper about?
0: Sociology, I don't remember what it was about. I BS'd my way through that one, (laughs) and I check my email, and there's an offer from, from Rock Nation to sign me. And I just like this is like what I always wanted It was like a record deal. It's like what I've been working for towards. And so I'm like, how am I gonna finish this term paper now? <laughs> so I I like I close so, out the so email.
1: so basically
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're looking at your computer and you're you're saying like I'm good now, and. Okay. I'll go back and write my paper, like just in case. Yeah. Cause that that part of you like wanted to like finish school or you just felt responsible.
0: I felt like I'm at the very end of the semester, like I'm almost done with the paper, like just, need, just get it done. Yeah. And I've never gotten in high school I ne- I got one B plus. The rest were A's and A minuses. And ironically the the B plus was in band what yeah <laughs> what? <laughs> that's another story
1: <laughs> but, the only B you got in all of high school was in band correct all right we're gonna hold that we'll just finish okay. the story because i i gotta okay. hear that
0: so the, and then you know duke was a little harder duke was hard i mean i was just like one of the smarter kids in my high school and now i'm like close to the bottom of the barrel <laughs> at you know, it's like the whole school was like the smartest kid at their school so I got like A's and B's right? But, but that was the only C I ever got was that class that I was writing the paper for um, did that teacher ever know like where you were I don't think so I don't think so and then so, but then I actually end up not signing I got an offer from RCA records as well and assigned to RCA, not to Jay Z. And that was the summer after my junior year. And then I signed a publishing deal. So I'd made like a little money. And I was like gonna quit school. I thought like you go to school to get a job. Okay, I have a job. I don't need to do school. And my mom said, Not so fast. My mother is someone who Parents were like, God bless my grandparents. They're like, you're a woman. You don't need to go to college. So she worked two full-time jobs put herself through college. To the point where I'm not paying for my own college. And now you're ready to walk away. After three years. And I really, I had taken summer school. I really had one semester left. So she called me and was just very honest like, this is going to be a problem for me if you leave. Not like I'm going to be upset like I caught you drinking or something like this is going to be a real problem for me. And so I said okay I'm going to I'll go I'm going to finish. And I I went back to school and then the when I went back teachers kind of knew how I would cuz I'm doing shows. I got class I got this like real senior schedule. I got class Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I leave Thursday night. I do shows Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I fly back. Do teachers treat you differently when they know that? Honestly, I think it was a testament to all my my teachers and professors. They really didn't. And I thought I thought a lot of them could've been might have been like harder on me, like who's this guy he's in the, or like a s you know, and they could have like stuck it to me, and they didn't, and um they were curious, some of them like one so I did a show in North Carolina like one of them came to it, and he's like, okay, I see like what you've been what you kind of talking about now <laughs> like um but I think, I think they all handled it really professionally, honestly. Did a lot
1: of people want to know where the first line of cooler than me came from?
0: A lot of people want to know who it's about. And the, the real truth is, it's an amalgamation of rejections in my life. <laughs> I just not being good at talking to girls. And... There's just there's several women that I, I know or I used to know that all like think it's all about them, oh, and like they there's like six of them out there, you know it's <laughs> like and they're all like that's my song, <laughs> but it's like no, you're not the only one that <laughs> that rejected me,
1: <laughs> oh man, yeah. But, like, where...
0: That's ironic. Another ironic... Sorry to jump in. That song is all about someone being cooler than me. And I think the way, like, I shot the music video for it, it, like... People will always say to me, like, what do you think? You're cooler than me? Like, they use this, like, quip on me. And I just always find that ironic because... Yeah, as I'm like speaking it, it seems like this 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 song about essentially not being cool made me, air quotes, cool, for a while, and then that I think that happened again in my life when I put out the song. I took a pill in Ibiza. It was like this song about blowing my shot in music got me another shot in music, and I don't know what it is about. About the, like the irony of my the song, whatever songs become popular for me, you know
1: well it it, it may be that you're just following something in, in inside you that just gotta come out mm. and it kind of takes you to these interesting places that maybe you're not ready for. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you were ready for all the immediate success. No, I was about at all. to have.
0: I was totally overwhelmed.
1: Time for a word from our sponsors. You may be wondering how I'm going to tie Mike Posner's early success with Squarespace, but to me, that's easy. Huge overlap. If you come out with work that you want everybody to know about, the best foundation you can possibly think of is a website powered by Squarespace. Your messaging is going to be crisp. Your photos are going to be vibrant. You're going to be able to tell the story behind your work so that people will want to look into it. You'll be doing justice to all the effort you put into that work. So go to squarespace.com. And use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get 10% off your new domain name and or website. The more you look into it, the more you're going to understand why CalFussman.com is powered by Squarespace. And ZipRecruiter. Now, Mike Posner's story is highly unique. Only one like it. But the twists and turns are like those that we might find in other lives and even businesses. We have to be prepared to adapt and change. And if you're in business and you need to bring in new people, go in a new direction, let me recommend ZipRecruiter. Its algorithms are state-of-the-art and they'll find you the candidates you need. Hey, take a free trial on me. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, type in your job description, and within 24 hours, you'll get qualified candidates that can take your business to a new place. If you need to make a change, think ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. What happens when everybody starts to say, "I love your music," "I love what you say," "I love your voice"?
0: At first, it's really cool, and then it became yeah. I said it, the, the word really is overwhelming. Where like, as I explained, I was this, I was this kid who like didn't go out. Like I was always. I kept to myself, I, and I still—I like, can have a. My mom always says, like, you know, you can have a good time all on your own. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was like I was the popular kid, and I had never been popular before. Oh, so you weren't used to this at all,
1: at all.
0: And it—I—I I just like couldn't handle. What, handle what does that it. do to you? And I started. Also, I think. I started to believe it too. Like I was so great. And I started to think like I was so great. And this whole world got created around me. This like little ecosystem, this little social system got created around me. That I was the center of. And I would go on tour and there's a whole like, band on the bus with me that work for me as a tour manager that works for me. And I'm like, very quickly, I'm around only people that either like work for me or like absolutely love me. And my identity, my self identity got very tied up in that being the popular guy, like being the guy. And then a funny thing happened, which was it kind of just stopped after I put out the song Cooler Than Me, which became like this big hit. And I thought, well, that's that's just what happens when I put out songs, because it was my first single. You know, after I signed the record deal, it was the first song we put out. Huge hit all over the world. I thought that's what's gonna happen every time I put out a song. <laughs> I really did. Like and I knew I knew intellectually that most people don't have two of those in a row. But I thought I was different because like I was me. Like, look at all the other impossible things that are happening in my life. My mom even said to me, She's like, What she's like, what are the chances of that actually happening again? And I said, What were the chances of it happening in the first place? You oh know? wow. And what happened was like something in the middle, which was I put, you know, like songs out after that, and each of them were less, progressively less popular than that one. And then I found myself about a year or two, maybe three years later, and I'm at home. I bought this million-dollar house in L.A. I had this Porsche, new like Porsche Cayman S, this sports car I was leasing, and there was nothing to do it had all stopped the calendar was empty and it was like huh who who if i'm not the guy who am i cuz that's who i was to myself like i was the
1: guy how old were you at this point
0: 23 24
1: does it feel like life is over in terms would, of being creative, I mean, obviously, you can. Yeah, I
0: had this decision to make. I mean, where I would find myself like clinging to moments of validation. Like, I would seek out someone to like tell me I'm good or seek out someone to recognize me because that made me feel good. It filled me up. And if I really look back on it, I don't think. I don't think, I think that started before music, which was like I got validation out of other people telling me I'm good.
1: Right. But the reality is, you were alone in your dorm room when you were making Cooler Than Me. Mm -hmm. There was nobody around, it was just you and the poetry that turned into music. So when you're doing that, it's really just you. (laughs) Right. And now, again, we're seeing you've got a million-dollar house and an empty calendar. And so it's really just you again.
0: It's just me again.
1: Which is maybe your sweet spot. I think so. And I, I mean, I ain't Sigmund Freud here, but... Just listening to yeah. the story.
0: I remember, that. I remember making this decision because there was also like, well, all right, like, what do I do now? And I made this decision at that time that I still really like music and I like making it and I want to continue to do that. And not only do I want to continue to do that, I want to get better at it. So... I, I found like a really great piano teacher who became my mentor. His name was Norman Henry Mamie, and I found a great guitar teacher Jean Marc Bacaldi, and I found really great vocal coaches Dave Stroud and Valerie Morehouse, and I just started getting better.
1: I'm going back to the gym. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm going back to the gym. And at this point, like, I'm still making a ton of music too, recording in the studio.
1: Are you are you recording just like you did at Duke, like between yeah. midnight and two in the morning? Just no. At Dif- a habit? No, different.
0: Different. T- I try to, and, and now I still, t- I try to record like during, I actually like in the morning. And I like finishing at like a normal time and eating and like going to bed and getting up early but i record the same way so we're in my studio now i just put same way like in my mom, my mom's computer in the dorm room the mic goes next to the computer i hit record on the laptop i hit r i sing until i make a mistake i hit the space bar stop and i go back and i i'm alone i don't have an engineer is what i'm saying um so I, so that's what I spent that time doing. But then I also like it gave me it was it was man, it's really remarkable because it got me thinking, and this is when the searching started, like if if accomplishing all those things that I dreamed of doing, it's like I really like these are like dreams come true like having platinum plaques. I love platinum plaques. And I'm not that's not cool to say that, but when I was a kid, I'd watch TV and see like Dr. Dre with a platinum plaque. Like it's unfathomable for me to have a platinum plaque. And like I get them designed the way they used to look, like the when <laughs> when when those shows were coming out cuz now they put like Different thing. I'm like, no, I want an actual like platinum vinyl on there, like but, like it's old fashioned. Like, I love them because, like, it's what I always wanted. But at the same time, realizing like it really didn't change my life. Like, it didn't change me. I'm not. I'm not anywhere further as a human than I was.
1: Okay, let me let me just take you back. I, I want to just—I I probably left a question out here. Okay, and that is when you started to be really successful. Uh-huh. So we we know that if there were six or seven women who were saying "Cooler than me" is about me, right? Yeah. Uh, that like there was a sense of I I can't get these women. So now. You put out this song, everybody loves it. Is it is it time to, and I, this is a terrible word, revenge, but uh, like all those things I couldn't have, mm-hmm. now I'm going to have them.
0: Yeah, it's, ter- it's terrible, but that's exactly where I went with it. And I'm not proud of it at all. It wasn't the right thing to do, but I started living out this fantasy. Like the of like the rap, the way the rappers I listened to when I was young would treat women, which was like, have sex with them and that's it. And don't let them close. Don't let them touch your money. Don't, you know? And yeah, I felt like I was I was getting revenge. Like I would go from City City and I'd sleep with women and I'd never talk to them again. And if like they... If someone said as much to me as, like, I had a nice time with you, that was grounds for me never speaking with them again because they are getting too close. That's how guarded I was. And I realize what I'm saying now is terribly sexist and well, you chauvinistic. You could almost
1: smell that that was going to happen.
0: You could almost. I, I guess you can in from, from your point of view, but, like,
1: it was what, what, it's ter-
0: it's terrible. And I still have to deal with that today. What How that ended up, I want to say, because I don't want to just leave it as like, yeah, I slept with a bunch of women. It made it very hard for me to connect with a woman after that because I had been with so many women in this one way. It was hard for me to turn it off. And it still is. You know? And at the end of the day, it's like, what do I actually want? Well, I like want love and i want like a a family at some point and like well i have to stop acting this way and not only do i have to stop acting this way i have to stop thinking this way and and realize that these are human uh, human beings right not pieces of meat which is really like how i treated women was really terrible like i was using women to impress my friends which is really like to validate me and that's not what other human beings are here for, you yeah.
1: yeah, well, I can almost see how if you you start out in a place where you can't have, well, now you can. And so it almost is like a balancing act. But in the end, you're left with nothing either way. Yeah.
0: I have a history of, of like, overcompensating like, I'm on the ditch on the right side of the road. Like, let me test out the ditch <laughs> all the way
1: on the left side of the road. You know? <laughs> well, maybe that's what you need to just ultimately straighten yourself out.
0: I think, you know, I think, yeah. But, I then, think so. but then the
1: interesting thing from what I'm picking up here is, like, you need to be back in that place where you're alone in a room and you you want something and that's going to lead you to the right place in music mm. which it's it appears as the story progresses that's what's going to happen
0: yeah it happens so i'm getting better at music and i also where i was about to go is it got me asking this question which was like if if the music and the and the women and the money haven't solved all my problems. If I still feel insecure at, and like not good enough in my own head, then what? Like what? What does work?
1: So this now is, I see where you want to get to the top of the mountain. This is
0: like maybe a left ditch move that I that I did at this point. But I bought a conversion van. It's like ninety four Dodge Ram conversion van. And I put the clothes in it that like fit in there, and I donated the rest and put like my guitar and like my laptop like so my, my recording stuff was in the van and like a keyboard and I just drove away.
1: You just cleared out.
0: I drove away. I left the house, I left the porsche. I was like I wanted to see if I could it was like, okay, if that stuff didn't really make me happy, like maybe if I get rid of everything. That would be it. that would make me happy. Oh, man.
1: I don't so, know if it's gonna make you happy, but I bet it produce good music.
0: So <laughs> I'm like I was like living in my van for like five, six months. And I went to Utah, hung out with some of the Summit guys there, and I went to Burning Man and um Were you having a good time? I was actually I was like pretty pretty stoked. It was it was fun living in that van. <laughs> Uh, and I eventually came back to LA because there was artists and people I wanted to work with who were here. Um,
1: and what's your mind like when you came back? What space were you in?
0: I felt. I felt different. Like I'm here, but I'm not, like, I'm here, but I'm not a part of this in a good way.
1: Well, that pretty much sounds like what it must have been like. In the dorm room at Duke when everybody's out mm. drinking and you're alone yeah. in your room. Yeah. You're you're there, mm. but you're kind of in a different place than mm. everyone around you. Yeah. So is that ideal composing turf?
0: I think so. Um and I I had recorded I'd gotten into like um, country music, too, at the time. And a buddy of mine showed me Merle Haggard's music. Do you know Merle Haggard? I'm, I I
1: met Merle Haggard. I spent oh, some time with him. Oh, yeah. He
0: probably did Merle Haggard's best interview. <laughs> it was great. Oh, man. Do we talk about that, or do I talk about my Merle?
1: <laughs> w- I'll tell you one one Merle Haggard story that always sticks with me. Okay. And it's it sounds like it was almost the exact opposite of when you got started. Mm. And that is when he was a kid, I guess his mom got, I think it was a, like either a violin or a fiddle mm. teacher. Uh, and he started playing. And then about four weeks later, the teacher came back to his mother and said, it's not gonna work, (laughs) not gonna work. And his mother said, why? And teacher said, he plays so well by ear, there's no sense for me to teach him the notes. Wow. And I was thinking about that when you were talking about having your recorder and your microphone and just wanting to hear your own voice in a a better way. It's amazing the different paths Mm -hmm. music and art take. Yeah. Every journey is different.
0: Yeah. My buddy played me a song of his called Mama Tried.
1: Oh, man, that's the classic. That's, That's the classic. That's the classic.
0: And... He pre- he played me that, and he played me some Hank Williams Jr. I was playing, I was and I'll name this friend. He's actually a you know, popular country artist. His name is Jake Owen. Jake Owen and I are in the studio one day, and this is in, like, my cold period, and we're passing the guitar, which means, like, I play a song I've written on the guitar. I pass it to him. He plays one he passes it back. I play him a tune and he looks at me and says, that's a great tune. What inspired it? I said, you know, it's about a girl I had a thing with in New York and some of it I just made up. And he looked at me and he goes, well, why don't you just tell the truth? (laughs) Uh Oh. And he said, you know, actually, there's writers out there that just tell the truth, and they don't care. And I was like, who? And he's like, okay, let me, like, take you to school a little bit. And he played, like, played me Hank Williams Jr., blues man. And he plays me, later he played me Mama Tried. And you know what, Cal? I thought, because I was living my own life, my own story it was it was boring to me like i didn't want to talk about what i had already done cuz it was like for me it was like watching the movie for the second time i got and it. i and i missed that no one else had seen the movie i missed and so i left the studio that night and i was i was on an airplane and that's when I took my notebook out and poof, I took a pill in Ibiza. comes out quick, writing all the lyrics to it, and I land on the play I have guitar with me, kind of figure out chords to it. I don't even know that many chords on the guitar, so I'm like kind of using the ones that I know uh to to write this song, and it was like it's a, a good song when I finished it, you know. And I record this song. And and this song is all about just telling the truth, like where I was. You know, I took a pill in a bee's at a show of Vici. I was cool. When I finally got sober, felt 10 years older, but fuck it, it was something to do. You know, I'm just a singer who already blew his shot. I get along with old timers because my name's a reminder of a pop song people forgot. And.
1: What was it like when you were writing those words down?
0: It's just quit. It's just going. it's just going. It's just going. You're not thinking about it. it's just going. it's it's twenty minutes, you know, ten, twenty minutes. and so it's not like anything. then you then you finish it and you and I've a small sense of like accomplishment, uh, uh, akin to like, when i finish a workout at the gym that's how it feels honestly it's that level of like oh man it's that level of like satisfaction not any more not any less than that so then like i start playing this song live and
1: now hold it when you wrote those words did you hear the music in your head or did you did the words yeah. just
0: come to you i heard i heard like the the kind of texture and the feeling of it
1: But it sounds like, in this case, the words actually came before the music. Yeah,
0: words and melody. Like, the words are in a melody, in a a pattern. It's not just, like, free verse poem. There's, like, a rhythm to it. I know, like, how it's going to go. So you could almost,
1: like, sense the music that was going to wrap around it. Correct.
0: right. Correct. And... So I start playing the song live for a while and then then it's time to like actually create that music that wraps around it. Which is really like my how I like to describe my job, like I hear it in my head and I just try to make it sound like that. It's pretty simple. <laughs> and get as close to that as I can. So I did that with this song and I put it out and um it like you know was it was like it was what it was it wasn't like a cooler than me like big hit or anything I just put it out and I set about touring across America on what we called the ninja tour and me and three friends one of whom interrupted our interview sweetly okay. <laughs> to death, Adam yeah. who's a wonderful musician we've made a bunch of music together and two other buddies we rented an RV and i would tweet every day i'm gonna play in the park at scottsdale like gooddale park 5 p.m come it's free bring your friends and i'll hug you after so me and adam would show up in the park sometimes a hundred people would come sometimes five people would come sometimes a thousand people would come
1: you're like getting back to where you were at duke where you're giving everything away for free
0: that's the end i never drew that parallel before i never drew that parallel That's that's it yeah and we would drive around. I this was one of the songs I would play, you know, for people. Um we show up and play these shows for free. And I well, it was really beautiful for me because I realized during that time, like one, anyone actually cared about me still. I thought like I had this hit, it was over. And I had this idea of my listeners as like these fickle, like pop culture crazed people. That was short attention spans. And I was really like wrong about who was actually listening to me and paying my paychecks. And I got to meet all these people on the Ninja Tour. And they were like people. (laughs) Real people. (laughs) Like you and I. (laughs) You know, with like, like all different types of jobs from like doctor to lawyer to like aspiring musician to like working at subway like people and i got to hear how my music had touched them see like some of them had my lyrics tattooed on their bodies and i mean there's one couple that i met in san francisco Hey, we had last year we had a miscarriage and We didn't leave the house until you came to town to play a show. That was the first thing you got out of the house. Thank you. I'm getting stuff like that every day. And it it just changed, like, how I looked at who was actually listening to my stuff. I realized, like, yeah, every once in a while I have these songs that become very popular and they kind of get into the zeitgeist of the world but under that there's like there's like 30,000 people out here that like love me and care about me and connect with me the same way I connect with like Merle you know they like they connect with me that way and there's that doesn't make them weirdos I thought they were all weirdos before I thought like even the word fan short for fanatic, fanatic. Yeah. I thought they were all fanatics. They're not. They're like they're people. And so I'm like, I'm doing my thing with this. And like I got a long beard and the whole deal. Like,
1: <laughs> like Forrest Gump, man. Yeah. When you going across country. Yeah.
0: And like I'm I'm like I have my van at this time. Like I'm spending time in Utah. And I manager. At the time, or who's still my manager now, but it's a different manager from the beginning, calls and he's like, so these guys did this remix of I Took a Pill in Ibiza in Norway. And I I knew they were getting a remix done. And it's the number one song in Norway. And I was like sitting in Utah with my beard. like <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. And then like... A week later, like it's now it's number one in like Switzerland too. And I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. Right. So, like, we have Christmas that year with my family. I'm like, look, I don't know for sure. Nothing's guaranteed, but it's looking like I'm going to have another one of another big song. I can like see it coming on the horizon. And I want to ask your help because like the first time I did this, I didn't handle it too well like I you know my relationship with all you guys suffered who I was like got all messed up and tangled in my mind and I love you and it happened again like this song then it like spread Europe, Europe and then finally comes the US and it becomes a big song in the US too so now I'm like I'm very excited because I get to like I've been working on my skills. I'm, like, better than I was, you know. And I loved, like, Jimmy Fallon shows, like, my favorite. The Roots were my first concert, so I'm, like, on Jimmy Fallon playing with the Roots. And I'm doing my best to, like, not get swept away by it all like I did the first time. And I have my moments for sure. Um, And it's hard because I have one of those like small ecosystems or social systems around me again where everyone is like works for me or loves me. And I'm like, but I'm like, tr- I'm trying like I have an assistant that like does everything for me. But I'll do I'll do little things like, OK, like you're too good at your job. Like go away, like take a vacation for a paid vacation for a week. And like, let me carry my own shit, <laughs> you know. So I'm like trying to balance this out. But what really, what really ends up happening is, um, an uh, April ish last year, mom calls and is like, "Uh, your your father's been he has a tumor in the in the front of his head, and they're gonna cut it out tomorrow." So. I'm like I like rehearse with the band and all this stuff like well I gotta go home. So I go home and dad's like in the hospital and but we don't know what the like the growth is if it's cancer or what so he goes to the operation we're waiting in the waiting room. doctor comes out and I'm holding my mom's hand and she says, you know, uh, your, your husband has uh, glioblastoma so we don't know what that is so like all my dad's friends are around too people start googling it it's brain cancer so I'm sitting there holding my mom's hand and she looks at me like just how you are now she looks over to I'm um, to her left and i didn't want to cry because of what the doctor said i wanted to cry because of how she looked at me but i didn't i was like i can't i feel like i couldn't for her like i need to like just pretend like i have it together and she looked away from me and she's like okay She kind of seemed like she's okay. She calls, like, my dad's brother, and she loses it. She loses it. And... Now I'm, like, living... Just like I was living this double life of, like, student and performer before. I'm living this life of, like, pop star and son. And... All stuff is like going around me. It's like momentum in my career and whatnot. But I'm needed as a son. And so it wasn't like sending my assistant for a vacation for a week. It's coming home. And like I'm a part of a team now that I am not the star of. I'm not even like the coach. My mom's the coach. I'm a player. And my dad is the star. And so now it's it's like, you know, I'll go on tour. My sister would come. we kind of trade places. She'd go back to work in New Orleans. I'd come home. And we just were doing our best to, like, take care of dad, you know. So I would, like, come off the tour. Everyone's, like, carrying my stuff. And, like, I could get back my dad's in a nursing home. And he's, like, he's dying in there. Like, it's, like, robbing his spirit. And, like, I need to get him home. But we need, like, we don't have a hospital bed. We don't have, like, a nursing aid, like, staff of people that can help take care of him. We don't have a geriatric chair. We don't have a Hoyer lift to move him from a chair into his bed and back. And my mom was, like, god bless her like she's been taking care of my dad like while he's basically while he's sick and we didn't know he was sick when he could like walk around and stuff he's confused like she's been like taking care of him for like years really and she's wiped so it's like okay I'm right, gonna like i know what i need to do and like i'm gonna wire into this and that's what i did last year that's what I did last year, and it's funny I meet you after talking with Alex because um he's been going through the same thing, and Alex is a friend of ours, a friend of ours, and a magical friend of ours, and my dad um passed away, or I, I like to say to where he transitioned. <laughs> my dad transitioned. In, in January. And I was, it's like cold in Michigan, you know. It's cold.
1: And oh, man, you're talking about the winters. Yeah, I don't like sad time.
0: And that was a test. I was like, okay, I'm going to move. I'm basically, I moved back. I moved back. And like, I thought, well, I've done all this work on myself. I can be happy anywhere. It was hard. It was hard. And he transitioned and then it was like a week later and I was like I, I just gotta get out of here and so i went to i had shows on the books in india and i was told my manager like i don't know what's up with my dad like could be a month could like i may have to cancel these i may not well he passed away and I was like i'm gonna do them so i went to india and i played shows i went to dubai and played shows and then I was like, all right, I'm going to move back to L.A. where it's warmer. And then I did another tour in April. And the the summer, and I was, like, really ex- doing some, like, other weird exploratory things I had wanted to do for a while. And it wasn't until, those things are cool, too. We started to talk about them, But it wasn't until two weeks ago. We went on a family vacation, my mom, my sister, and I. And it's like, he's not coming. And I had really like, you know what, Cal? Like, the whole time my dad didn't cry. Like, I didn't cry. When my, the funeral was beautiful. People would say, I'm so sorry. I said, don't be sorry. I had a dad to even, like, miss. And I'm grateful for that. And... I thought, like, I had learned to meditate on stuff. Like, I'm above grief. Like, I'm not sad.
1: Oh, man. You're the, 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 I can I'm, see the right hand coming.
0: Right? And um, uh, <laughs> two weeks ago, I'm with my mom and my sister, and my mom's checking her voicemail. She's doing it on speakerphone, like, because seeing who called her at the house. She makes a mistake. Plays this old message. It's dad calling her. And I just I lost it, man. Like my mom lost it in the hospital. I lost it. It was like I'm try I was trying so hard to be strong all that time. All right. Crying in my mom's arms. Just tell the truth. Twenty nine years old, t- crying in my mom's arms like a baby. I don't remember the last time I cried like that. And it's funny how it changes. Like the the, the grief, right? It's like it's a it switches forms. And I th- I really thought like I got figured out. <laughs> He's gone, man, or he's different, you know, and um, that's kind of where I'm at right now.
1: Did did you have, like, a last conversation with him where you're able to say everything you needed to say? Yeah,
0: a lot of them, a lot of them, because... We had this wonderful hospice social worker. Oh my gosh, she saved me so. She saved me. One of the things she says, he's going to decide when he dies, right? So my dad is like, from diagnosis to death is ten months. So, one of the things she said, he's going to decide when he when he when he goes, and if he wants to do it when you're there, he will. You'll be there, and if he doesn't you won't. It's not up to you. So that, what what that does is give you permission to not sleep on the couch next to him. Like, you can sleep in a bed. At least for me. That, right. Like, I felt okay doing that. And then she wrote, she recited these six things that family members should do before a family member passes. Which was like, I don't remember all of them, but Some of them were like give and get forgiveness, like if you need to address something with him that you can't forgive him for, you need to do it now. And if you need to forgive him for something, you need to do it now. It's like give and get love. Like you can go in the like you can lay in the bed with them, tell them you love them. And the main one was. Make sure they know it's okay for them to die. And let them know that you'll be okay. Right. And so, yeah, I got to say, hey, man, I'm gonna miss you. Also, I had to say to my dad, because he, like, he was confused a lot. And I think he had, like, some Alzheimer's dementia going on combined with the fact that, like, his head had been sawed open and, like, A chunk had been taken out of it. And so I realized at some point I got him home from the nursing home. I'm like, I don't think, I don't know if he even knows what's going on. Like everyone comes in here every day, tells him he looks great. And like, I don't know if he knows he might die soon. And so I told him. And I said that one day, he's he's off on a tangent. I said, let's get on the same page. He said, okay. I said, you have brain cancer, and there's a good chance. I didn't say definitively because I know miracles happen. I always wanted to leave the space for that. There's a good chance your life could end soon. As he get scared. It was like news to him. Like, and he had like, you know, he was there with doctors talking to him before, but it's like I think maybe he forgets. He's confused. And his hand starts to shake. I'm holding his hand, you know. And so I got to give him that, right? Which I felt like he deserved, like to know what's going on with him. And then I, yeah, I got to tell him, man, hey, uh, I'm gonna miss you but you've laid an incredible foundation for me. And this is what you've done for me. And this is how like you've shown our family and not even just our family, like our friends, unconditional love. Like this guy was like a love machine. <laughs> He's a, people like the most common way people describe him is like a, as a teddy bear. And it was like, "You, you know, you, you pay for my drum lessons. Like, you always supported me in my music, even when it sounded terrible. You drive me <laughs> to these studios, like, on Six Mile in Detroit, and it, it created, it, uh, made a platform for me to do what I love now. And so I got to have those talks with him a bunch of times, a bunch of times, and and that's what I, I. Try to convey in my first podcast and i'll i'll do it right now with the, for the people listening is you you might not have 10 months to do that someone's not might not come up to you with like waving a flag like hey this person's gonna be gone soon but everyone's gonna be gone soon so it's like who in your life do you need to have that talk with that you're not and what are you waiting for just do it right now you know because any of us can be gone like that and and all of us will be gone at some point point. and that was like that's probably that's what this year has been about for me since since my father transitioned in january was It's like a real reminder that I, too, am going to die. And there's things I've been putting off to do that I'm going to do when I'm done being popular that I need to do now. And so I set about doing a lot of those now.
1: What has all this taught you about the truth? The
0: truth, the capital T truth.
1: Capital T truth. (laughs) Well, it was it was kind of interesting when you were talking about how the Ibiza song came to be where somebody basically looked at you in the eyes and said, mm-hmm. to tell the truth. Yeah. I would say what this taught me about the truth is that
0: it's more elusive than I thought. Because when my... At my father's funeral, when those people are coming up to me saying, I'm so sorry, and I'm saying, It's okay, I had a dad, I'm grateful for this, I'm celebrating his life, and I'm smiling. That was my truth at the time. But when I look back on it now, Underneath. it was that was a boat of hope floating on an ocean of sadness. But it was like I couldn't I didn't see that then. And I really, I really thought, like, that was the truth then. Um, so I would say what has taught me about the, the truth is it isn't always isn't always as
1: clear-cut
0: as I thought or think.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting. You were telling me about going on a search. And I was kept wondering, like, what... What are you searching for? What, what are you really trying to to grasp now? Do Do you have an idea? Yeah, well, one of
0: the things I've come to is that I'm whole right now. And the searching for years has blinded me from the fact that I'm like whole and complete right now. And this is my life like right here. This is it. Like all like the work that I've done and the exploration, like it's amounted to this. Like this is it, baby (laughs) on the couch or cow. This is your life. (laughs) This is it. And at some point it's going to be over. And the, The search actually has like lost a lot of its mystique to me. Like, I, if I was talking about my identity was wrapped up in being like the guy before, then my identity got wrapped up in being the searcher. But you can miss your life being the searcher. And so, this, I think the search, the searching's like led me to that realization that. just stop trying like like stop trying to improve yourself so much and enjoy being who you are
1: well you know that kind of sums up everything about this whole experience to me cause this I don't know how long we've been together mm-hmm. but it's just been a great morning
0: incredible it's a
1: great way to live to get to spend this time with you man and I hope this is the start of an enduring friendship. Me
0: too. Well, it is. If we both decide it is, it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Best is
1: yet to come.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I, there was one other Merle Haggard story. I remember asking him, I said, you know, there's so many people who sing Mama Tried. And it's just... It's just not like it when you sing it. And he said, that's because they're singing it, and I lived it.
0: He lived it. He lived it, and that's what, it opened my eyes to like, like actually my life isn't boring. Like my truth actually is cool. And I can talk about, like, just actually what happened. I don't need to make up a, I don't need to fill in blanks to go with the girl in New York. Like, I can just say what happened. And that can be it.
1: And I think that's going to take you to a lot of great music to come, brother.
0: Thank you, sir. Yeah. Because, like we said, the truth, it changes, you know. God bless you. God bless you,
1: Kyle. Cheers. Time to wrap it up with a few takeaways. I love the way Mike spoke about meeting his fans when he hit the road after he got lost in his success and finding out who they really were. I love the way he took care of his dad at the end of his father's life. You know, we can all dream about the trappings of success. And yet it always seems to be our connection to other people that gives us what we're really looking for in life. With that, I want to thank Tim Ferriss. If not for my connection with Tim, this podcast wouldn't exist. Such a beautiful gift he gave me. And with it, I'm able to connect with so many people I never have gotten a chance to meet. Last week, after my deep dive into ice cream with the food therapist, Dr. Lara Pence, I received photos of people eating ice cream around the world. One came from Ben Meredith outside Whisk Creamery in Perth, Australia. Ben is holding a sign asking me to join him for an ice cream. And you know what? Ben, one day soon, I will. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to receive photos of the cities and towns and places where you listen to big questions. So if you're up to it, please pass them along. Also, I've been getting an education in self-promotion, and I'm told it's beneficial to get as many ratings as possible on the Big Questions with Cal Fussman iTunes link. If you got a minute to rate Big Questions or write a review, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for connecting, because it takes two. See you next week. Cheers.